Morning. Absolutely delightful to be back with you. Um, as we're calling for your confirmands and those to be received that Seth and another fellow in our diocese were among our very two church planters many years ago that went uh, forth to help create what we actually know to be the Diocese of the Carolinas. So there's a particular affection I have for him uh, and for his family and a particular, particular affection also for this congregation. It's been a delight to watch you guys grow over the years and to move into different places and and be challenged in every place you went because the gospel continues to produce life in this church. And it's very, very satisfying to see. So it's great to be with you. I'm going to begin our time this morning with a parable. A parable written many years ago by a man named Theodore Weddle, who was a one-time canon at the National Cathedral. He wrote... On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was but one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved, and various others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station and gave of their time and money and effort to support, it, support its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work for them. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were sick, they were dirty, and the beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split among the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. And so they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station would be founded. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that area of the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drowned. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we enter into these early days of Advent that you would open our hearts again to the person and to the message of Jesus Christ. We pray that in word and in deed, in our individual life and in our corporate life, all might be said and done to the glory of Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. We're mostly looking at you today with this bit out of 1 Timothy that you have, chapter 2, in your printed bulletin. There's three particular things I want you to see in this text today. First is a call to sound doctrine. Secondly is a call to prayer. And thirdly is a call to a holy life. Right? Sound doctrine, prayer, and a holy life. It is so easy for the church to lose sight of the main thing. And I would suggest that today churches are being riven by arguments over politics and race and what it means to be human. All of those are important questions, and in no way am I suggesting we shy away from addressing those cultural questions that we face. But I will be clear that those things are secondary. They are not the main thing. And the church must be focused on the main thing. And Advent returns our mind to that today. Wonderful reading out of the beginning of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark alone, and we're not going to go there. This is just a freebie. Um, Mark alone, as the gospel writers, is a little ambiguous. Is the message that Jesus proclaimed the gospel, or is Jesus himself the gospel? Mark seems to imply both. I think Mark is on the money. Not that the others don't. He just plays with that more than the other gospel writers do. So if we say that Jesus is the main thing, we would be on target. But what particularly about Jesus? Well, we don't have to guess because Scripture lays it out. And that Scripture will actually be echoed in our prayer book. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right, And that message, that doctrinal assertion, doctrinal assertion was at risk in Ephesus, which is the church that our young pastor Timothy was attempting to pastor. Their life-saving work was being jeopardized, and Paul was concerned. Jesus, sometime later in the revelation to John, would echo an ongoing concern with the church in Ephesus, though they did seem to get the doctrinal part right, They might have slipped on another, which we'll look at in a moment. But Jesus said in Revelation 2 to this same church, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You've persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Checkmark for sound doctrine, but deficient. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you first had. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Chilling and sobering words from the Lord of the church. I will remove your lampstand. It is possible, and we're gonna, and I'm not, we're gonna stay with sound doctrine and we'll look at a call to a holy life. But it is possible to be right and wrong. It is possible to be doctrinally sound and obnoxious, judgmental, close-minded, worse, close-hearted. For the second time in as many chapters, Paul circles back to this matter of sound doctrine. He writes in the text we have today, verse 5, For there is one God, there is one meteor between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul's laying an argument out that would suggest that sound doctrine is what produces a sound church, right? That right living follows right thinking. The very last thing that changes in our life is our manner of life. 
Albert Moeller, writing of the radical transformation of, the church, of Christian theology and Christian belief taking place in the Western church, wrote, the sovereignty of God is being replaced with the sovereignty of self. In this therapeutic age, human problems are reduced to pathologies in need of a treatment plan. Sin is simply excluded from the picture, and doctrines as central as the wrath and justice of God are discarded as out of step with the times and unhelpful to the project of self-actualization. And in this world of murky madness, of true and false, for every doctrine we know to be true, there seem to be hundreds of pretenders. And so Paul, writing to Timothy and through Timothy to this church in Ephesus, begins with doctrine. He begins with a transformation of the mind. Right? But this is not just his message to young Timothy. It was his counsel to the church at large. And so he will write to the church in Rome. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In his letter to this church in Ephesus, he wrote, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understandings, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And there's the diagnosis. There's the human problem. It's with head, yes, but also with heart. Paul tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, but he goes deeper. He penetrates beneath what he speaks of as the futile mind and the darkened understanding and the willful ignorance. And he says all of this is rooted in the hardness of your heart. And here's our deepest disease. Here's the infection that infects everything else. Our mental suppression of God's truth is actually rooted in the hardness of our heart. Our hard hearts will not submit to the supremacy of Christ. We can barely even say that word today without choking. Our blind minds, therefore, cannot see the supremacy and the glory of Christ because our hearts will not yield to Christ. And so Paul begins by stating and restating the necessity of sound doctrine. And the basic premise behind, Paul, behind Paul's writing is this. Christian faith, the Christian faith, has substance. It has content. It matters what you believe. It has always mattered what Christians believe. Classically, these things we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Father and the Spirit, these things we believe about the Christian faith, these things are called doctrines. But like the word sin, the word doctrine is often not used in our culture, even our Christian culture. And when it is used, it's rarely positive. But like it or not, what you believe about the faith that you profess will both determine your eternal destiny and the manner in which you live this life now. So your first question of the morning is what do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? There are those even within the church who have no use for doctrine. They view doctrinal statements as being divisive. They claim they create negative and intolerant religious environments. And they can. Jesus went at the church in Ephesus in Revelation for this. But I would argue the opposite. 
I would argue that a doctrineless faith is a rootless faith. A lowest common denominator, contentless faith, is an anemic faith. And it is exactly this believe anything you want kind of faith that is rightly being rejected by many outside the Christian faith as trivial and inadequate to explain the complexities of their lives. Paul begins with sound doctrine. But then there's a call to prayer. Verse 1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There are many dimensions to our Anglican experience and understanding of the faith that I find lovely and attractive, but none more than this. Prayer undergirds everything we do and all that we are. Not prayer as a formality, although you can make prayer a formality. But prayer is a recognition that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that we seek his mind and his will as a church, for our church, for our lives. I still pastor a congregation, and I will from time to time ask, answer questions like, well, why should I pray? And I usually tell them that my answer is going to disappoint them because at some levels, I'm a very simple man. Fundamentally, I pray because Jesus told me to pray. And quite honestly, that's enough for me. I can get into a lot of theology about prayer, happy to have some of those conversations. But it is enough for me that Jesus both told me to pray and then showed me how to pray. And I'm satisfied with that. And what are we to pray about? Or pray about everything, right? So often <clears throat> we view and even approach prayer as, well, I can do nothing else, so I'll pray. Sorry for the circumstance of your life. I'll pray for you. But the fact is, for the Christian, prayer, prayer is our first course of action, our most hopeful course of action. And as Paul gives instruction in this chapter, we see that our prayers are not simply to be narrow and personal but they're to be expansive and expanding. And so, of course, yes, I do pray for my nearest and dearest, but I also pray for the needs of the world. And as I look at the Ukraine or the Middle East, sometimes my prayers are just simply, Lord, have mercy. But I pray. Some of you will know the name John Stott. He once recounted an experience he had in a church he was visiting. He said, some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, so he's British, holiday is a vacation. Uh, he was, the pastor was away on holiday. The lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine. And the two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which also was fine. We should pray for the sick, but that was all. He wrote, the intercession could hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world, no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. And so your second question, do you pray? Do you pray regularly? Do you pray methodically? Do you pray yes for your own needs, and for those whom you love, but do you pray for those whom you do not love? 
Do you pray for the church universal? For this church? Do you pray for the needs of the world? First of all, then, Paul writes, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Sound doctrine in a call to prayer. And then thirdly, a holy life. When Paul tells us to pray that we may lead a peaceful, quiet, and godly and dignified life in every way, he did not have in mind a stress-free, comfortable, suburban Greenville life. What he had in mind was the establishment of an environment in which the, Christ, the non-Christian would speak well of Christ. Kent Hughes tells a story of the British biologist, anthropologist, and famed agnostic Thomas Huxley. So fiercely did Huxley contend for Darwin's theory of evolution that he was nicknamed Darwin's bulldog. It seems that toward the end of his life, Huxley was a guest at a retreat in a country home. And most of the guests went to church when Sunday came round. Naturally, Huxley did not go. Alone, he approached a man known to have a simple and radiant Christian faith. Right? Catch that. A simple and radiant Christian faith. And Huxley said to this man, suppose you don't go to church today. Suppose you stay at home and you tell me quite simply what your Christian faith means to you and why you are a Christian. But, the man said, you could demolish my arguments in an instant. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. To which Huxley gently replied, I don't want to argue with me. I want you to simply tell me what this Christ means to you. And so the man stayed and did as Huxley had requested. When he had finished, there were tears in the old agnostic's eyes. As far as we know, Thomas Huxley never placed his faith in Christ. But we don't know. Friends, I have conversation after conversation with members within my own parish who are hesitant, insecure, fearful about talking about Jesus. I can't answer their questions. I can't speak as well as you guys can. I don't know what to say. And I usually tell them two things. First thing I tell them is, if you can argue someone into the faith, someone more eloquent than you can argue them out of the faith. It's not your words that matter. The second thing is a question. And it was a question from this story. What if you do something different? What if you simply speak about what Jesus means to you? And I would say that many in our modern Christian world are more deficient in that. We've been trained to argue about who Jesus is and what he did. And we may give mental assent to that and our hearts may rest upon that. But even there, many struggle with saying what Jesus means to them, simply. So your third question. What does Jesus mean to you? Sound doctrine, a call to prayer, a call to a holy life. 
what do we do with this? What does this mean for us at Village in Greenville on a sort of rainy day? I'm going to say at least two things. First, for those who are here today who have not yet settled in your heart that Jesus is who he said he is, who are not quite sure that Paul had it right when he wrote Timothy that the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, if you find yourself just unsettled, it is perfectly legitimate to ask God to show himself to you. It is actually a good thing that you're honest to God. And it's okay to say, you know, I am not sure if you're real, but if this is true, I am open to you. And if you find yourself in that place today, there's prayer, folks in that prayer chapel during communion after the service that would be delighted to pray with you, not to change your minds, but simply to stand with you and ask the God whom they know to show himself to be real to you. Secondly, for those who are here today who are persuaded by the main thing, a threefold charge. Now that's why you get to be bishop, because I turn a two-point conclusion into a five-point conclusion just like that. <laughs> a three-point charge for those who are persuaded that Jesus is the main thing. First is grow in sound doctrine. Just because you believe in Jesus, you have not arrived. There is always more about God to know. This is part of my image of what heaven will be like and part of what I see in the Revelation when they would continually fall before the throne in worship. My personal theory of all this is every time they looked up, they discovered a new dimension of God they did not know and they fell back down on their face in glory, glorious wonder because of what they've discovered. We will spend an eternity and never exhaust the knowledge about God. There is always more of God to know. But marry that with, there is always more of God to experience as well. Don't settle. Don't check the box. I believe in Jesus. Don't become self-contented. Press on. Press on to know more about God. Press on to experience more of God. I correlate this sometimes in my relationship with my wife, Jackie, when we dated. Because I loved her, I wanted to know more about her. And the more I knew about her, the more I loved her. And it was an endless cycle that has gone on for 38 years of continually discovering that the woman that now I'm married to is not the 19-year-old girl that I married and has changed many times over. Secondly, we are meant to be a life-saving station. And the church is confused about this or maybe embarrassed about this. Not this church, but the church. We are not an NGO. We are not a political action committee. We're not a civic organization. We are not a club. We are a life-saving station. We are a church. We have a mission. We have the very same mission that Christ had to seek and to save the lost. We have been entrusted with the greatest treasure, not just the book, but of whom the book speaks. We've been entrusted with a great treasure, but also with a great responsibility. We've been given and are meant to hold forth the very words of life. And so, what if you commit yourself to prayer? That you join in corporate prayer Sunday by Sunday, that it's not, that the prayers of the people are not a three-minute commercial break. What if in the silence of your heart you add your concerns for those whom you love and for all people? 
What if you regularly lift before the Lord the people you love who this day are far from Christ? And week after week, you bring them to Jesus, irrespective of their stand toward Him. What if you sought to live a life that the manner of that life gives weight to your words? And what if instead of trying to reason or argue or persuade the people who cross your path about why they should believe in Jesus, you instead simply make a commitment that by God's grace, haltingly, stammeringly, you will simply tell others what this Jesus means to you and leave to Him, commit them to God's grace that He will use those words for His own good purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may our boats be ready, our doors open to rescue those who are drowning. May we be salt to a despoiled, flavorless world. May we be water to the spiritually thirsty and light to those who live in intellectual darkness so that in all things, your Son's name may be exalted. And it's for his glory that we pray. Amen.